today's February 4th, 2016. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Our guest today is Jag Kanwal. Is that right? Jag. Jag, sorry. Jag Kanwal, who is Associate Professor of Neurology, Neuroscience, and Psychology, all at Georgetown uh, University School of Medicine and at the Krasnow Institute for Advanced Study at George Mason University. Hi, Jag. Hi. Um, his lab has a long-standing interest in the neurobiology of vocal communication in mammals, especially mechanisms of speech perception in uh, the bat. And yes, I said speech, not screech, which you'll explain later, I guess. Um, around the room, we've got uh, Alfonso Apicella. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So, um, Jag, you've worked your way up the phylogenetic ladder from goldfish to primates, right? Um, so can you say something by way of introduction about vocal communication, at least in the two mammal species that you've studied, I guess, most, uh, which is the mustache bat and uh, the rhesus monkey. So in terms of the commonalities and the departures, um, in terms of the neural organization and computational principles and how they reflect maybe a progression or if they reflect a progression toward core principles in human communication. So justification for the model systems, how and, and bat versus primate versus human. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good question. Actually, we have a, a, a perspective paper that we wrote with uh, Joseph Rauschecker, who works on primates. It's called Managing uh, Species-Specific Calls um, in Bats and Primates, if I correctly remember. And uh, so there we, in fact, try to relate the processing in the brains of bats and uh, and monkeys. And interestingly, uh, even though they are very different in their looks and their their evolutionary position, um, the brains of uh, all mammals are designed along the same uh, basic principles. And the structures that you find in one species are there in another species as well. So uh, a lot of the auditory processing that has been done in many different species uh, can all be connected together and that is the hope of, uh, in fact, working on different species to arrive at some principles that would be true across all species. Because then the hope is that those principles that we come to uh, understand would also apply to humans. And so I think for them, from that point of view, it's uh, very important to, in fact, uh, study um, uh, systems uh, in, in multiple species. And uh, what we're really looking for are the principles. And working on a species like bats allows us to um, to go beyond the specific uh, issues that have to do with a particular species. For example, the types of sounds, uh, and to make it to make it um, relevant and to get funding, you you know forces you as compared to, let's say, working on primates or humans, forces you to find those principles and then, um, you know, elucidate those. So I was wondering about, like, the bat's pretty uh, interesting because it's an outlier in certain kinds of ways. So it really stretches principles. Uh, and I don't know if, how much we'll get into, like, real cortical mechanisms, but one of the things about the bats is that they, you know, most of the stuff happens at really high frequencies, right? So you can get high frequency, you can get frequency modulations much faster than uh, 
you could get frequency modulations at lower frequencies, right? Because you have a lot of the frequencies are so fast. And I don't know whether, but the neurons are, I don't know if the neurons are that much faster. Uh, and so if you're going to detect certain salient frequencies like, oh, onsets or frequency sweeps or something like that, which would be where you would look for common principles in vocal communication sounds like in primates, whether it really, uh, whether, whether that makes a translational difficulty or challenge or something that's interesting uh, that you come across. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very good point. In fact, um, you know, some people have raised that bats are highly specialized animals. And so how, how um, what we find, how broadly would that be applicable? Um, however, it turns out that, as I uh, pointed out, that the brain structures are the same, the neurons are the same. The frequencies that they produce are in a higher frequency range, but in fact, um, it's not the, the t time range in which the neurons respond is not really that different. So, uh, one of the uh, classical time windows that people look at is 10 milliseconds. And so that integration time window appears to be the same, whether it's bats or mice or, or primates, uh, in which information between two neurons appears to be integrated. Uh, and so even though the bats have higher frequencies, the frequency modulations that they care for are in the order of, uh, let's say, 10 milliseconds or a little bit slower or faster, but that's not really that different from the frequency modulations, at least in speech sounds. Uh, for example, when we say ba, the frequency modulation is also on the order of uh, 10 to 20 uh, milliseconds uh, long, the, the duration of that. So I think in the ball, we are still in the ballpark. Uh, things may be a little bit faster because for smaller animals, the heart rate is faster, uh, so everything is uh, is an order of magnitude faster in terms of the physiology, but the neural processing uh, is not. I don't think is that different. How about production rates, so like uh, vocal, like yeah, kind of production uh, production rates are uh, so the production rate rates depend upon the oscillation of the laryngeal muscles, and actually that's also true in terms of the hearing. Also, it depends upon the oscillation of the hair cells. So definitely there are specialized mechanisms at the peripheral levels as compared to the central levels of processing. There are definitely specializations that the bats have for production uh, because they can oscillate their very delicate muscles to produce high-frequency sounds. And by the same token, their hair cells are very small and short uh, and they can also vibrate to very high frequencies. So that's really where we see the specialization and the, and the differences. And how about the length of a vocalization? Is it about the same as a syllable, or is it really a lot shorter? The total length of a syllable uh, in a bat uh, ranges, but it does reach the, the, the length of, uh, let's say, a phony in humans. So. Can I back up for one second? So is it true, so a lot of what bats do is echolocation. Is it? Is there any overlap in the neural machinery and the, the cells that are doing auditory social communication versus echolocation? And if there is, I mean, it, it, well, is there for some of this? Yes, uh, there, there is an overlap in the machinery. In fact, that was one of the most interesting findings. 
And uh, I believe that, in fact, um, the repercussions of uh, those types of findings still haven't uh, fully taken hold. But what we were faced with when we first started to look at the bat of the brain and try to get the recordings, we were a little bit uh, at loss of where to record from. So because the neurons in the auditory cortex of the bat were highly specialized, okay, highly specialized to respond to the echolocation sounds. And this is, this is very important. Highly specialized means that you can present practically any sound and they will not respond. You can even present the bat's own pulse and they will not respond much. But they will only respond if they hear the pulse of the bat that that, that bat produces and its echo. And that made a lot of sense in terms of computation because the pulse by itself has no meaning. For example, if you're doing, trying to do target ranging, you need to know when the echo came back. So if, you, if the neuron doesn't get the echo, it's, it cannot send any information. If it fires, it's sending the wrong information. So, so if you present any other kind of sound, these neurons wouldn't respond, right? So they're highly specialized. So we said, well, we know from the last 20 years of research or more that these neurons are highly specialized. Where are we going to record the response to communication sounds, right? Because uh, 70% or 80% of the brain was already described very well to be consisting of these specialized, highly specialized neurons. So one of the things we first tried said, well, let's look at the same neurons and see for a change if they respond to the communication sound. And we were sh then shocked to find out that they did respond to the communication sounds, and some of them responded better to the communication sounds than to the echolocation sounds. So now the highly specialized, so-called highly specialized neurons were highly specialized for two things, because they responded specifically also to the communication sounds, and if you use the same criteria, they were also highly specialized to respond to the, to the communication but sounds. But they almost seem at odds with each other, the two things, because for echolocation, you need such temporal precision and spectral precision, I guess, and for for, for vocal communication, yeah. you need some constancy and you need some, yeah, you know, some variability, uh, yeah. variability. So, so very how good. does that happen? Yeah, very good point. How does that happen? So that's, uh, you know, we haven't, uh, we haven't fully resolved that. But it's uh, it's be, it's uh, one way that that can happen is that the switch of what the neuron responds to is actually in the sound itself. So what we have to get away from is thinking that this neuron is in fact the unit of some processing, and to that the a small network of neurons is the unit of processing. So the network of neurons that gets activated by uh, echolocation sound is different probably than the network of neurons that gets activated by a communication sound. But that network may have neurons that overlap between both the, both the networks. But the broader point that you asked before that I want to get to is the fact that if the same neurons are responding to two different things, then are we going in the wrong track about trying to compartmentalize the brain and, uh, and, and as is done in all textbooks and everywhere, that the brain, this part of the brain is for this and this part of the brain is for that. If we extend this argument that we find in, in the bat brain, that means at least there is a possibility that the same neurons can be doing multifunctional things. 
And so, in fact, uh, I, I organized a small conference on that, on multifunctional neurons, and there were only a few examples where uh, where we were able to show this. So that definitely exists, and the bat's brain is tiny, so perhaps it has to pack a lot of different types of processing in this little brain. But then uh, you can extrapolate that principle, and in human brains or larger animal brains are larger, but they do also a lot of other things. Uh, so I believe that uh, we really have not... Um, really fully address this question and not even sort of not even taking going in that direction by just assuming that different parts of the brain are doing different things. We are really on the wrong track about how exactly the brain functions. And so I think in that sense, uh, this uh, some of this research on the bats, uh, communication sounds and echolocation sounds is providing uh, a sort of a window into how uh, how this could happen and that we should think beyond that. So I'd just like to add that Nicole Witcher just walked in. Hi, Nicole. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Um, okay, so so an, another sort of a backup here. So um, bats are socially complex. Uh, they're mammals like us, and they have structure and syntax in their vocalizations um, that, that you've painstakingly cataloged, at least for one species mm-hmm. of bat, this mustache bat. Um, so do we know that these are learned vocalizations? Do they crystallize the plasticity? Where, what are the sort of the, the analogs or how, uh, between avian? Because we used, we're used to thinking in terms of bird song, I guess, mm. in, here, in this room anyway. Mm-hmm. At least some of us are. Right. Um, so, can you just say something about these? The what we know about uh, and do bats? You know, do they have? Different accents and different language across, yeah. you know, like it's, yeah. it's, it's like bird song. So. Yeah, good point. So, of course, the songbird uh, literature and the research is, is really advanced in terms of uh, auditory processing. Uh, a lot of good work has been done, and uh, uh, we are trying to use that, some of that, uh, on in the bat uh, research because uh, birds are very vocal and they have these uh, stereotypic, uh, you know, extensive uh, production of these songs. Um, so in, uh, it interestingly turns out that uh, bats do learn their vocalizations. Uh, a lot of this work has not been possible to do because uh, bats are difficult to breed in captivity, um, but some people have gone into the caves uh, recently in uh, Cuba and they were able to, uh, record the vocalizations of the pups, and uh, they found that there were very few types of vocalizations they made. Uh, so given what I showed you in the talk, uh, clearly that means they must learn a lot of those other vocalizations that they produce later on. In fact, uh, people have done experiments where they uh, put two uh, species of bats or subspecies of uh, the same uh, uh, species of bat, uh, and uh, these two different populations, uh, when they were put together, they actually modified their sound so that they were producing the same type of syllables. So that's evidence of learning. Also, people have shown uh, in pups that uh, for echolocation, they also uh, learned that signal. Interestingly, uh, primates do not. When people did the same type of experiments with primates, they actually only produced their genetically uh, predetermined type of sound for their communication. So bats in that sense are more like birds that they uh, have vocal learning. And as uh, Eric Jarvis has shown, you don't need a large brain to do vocal learning. It's just some connections that have been shown in birds to be present that are probably involved in vocal learning. And perhaps those type of connections are present in bats as well because uh, sound communication is extremely important to them. So is there another uh, question? Uh, so that, that leaves 
from an evolutionary perspective, that leaves some big gaps. There's a big gap between birds and bats and a big gap Other than between the bats fly. and humans. <laughs> yes. So I'm kind of wondering, what do you, what do you imagine connects these <laughs> together? Are they just reinventions of the same thing over and over again? Or was is there some kind of a... Uh, I mean, if they were just reinventions, and they each might have reinvented it a whole different way and implemented it a whole different way. Uh, so you, that must worry you. Yeah, uh, it makes you wonder for sure. Um, but, you know, we have to get our answers from nature. So the fact that this exists, uh, in fact, well, one thing is in it actually makes, makes bats and in some ways, songbirds closer to humans uh, than one would imagine. Those gaps uh, suggest to us that nature finds a solution to something and somehow stores it somewhere in its either genetics or epigenetics, uh, those mechanisms. And when there is a, a push, a drive, a need for something to be used, then uh, perhaps those circuits uh, uh, get re, uh, re, I should say, expressed, and that ability, you know, is is present. So everything is competition. When there is no need for that, perhaps there's other types of behaviors that get expressed. But it seems that in bats and in birds, or even though they're separated by millions of years uh, in their evolution in different directions. Uh, and ultimately in humans, for all of which animals' uh, sound production and perception is extremely important, they were able to re-express or use some of those that circuitry to do some of this complex type of uh, processing. So, in fact, some of the latest things that we are doing are, are take, going back down the evolutionary scale and even looking at fish and seeing if even fish have the ability to be able to tell the difference between um, different types of uh, complex sounds. And that has not been uh, done in any, uh, any species of fish so far. And we are just trying to develop now uh, training methods to see that. And uh, exactly on your question, that would be very interesting from that perspective to know, in fact, even in fish, when there was no clear cortical type of structure present, whether these a type of uh, computations of uh, frequency modulations or other types of uh, sound discrimination could have uh, could have evolved. So time will tell. So you think, though, that the solution in all three of the species that you mentioned is the same solution? Um, not necessarily. It could be similar. There are always also multiple ways of uh, getting to the same answer. So these frequency modulated uh, processing, there's been a lot of research once people discovered from the bats and other animals that uh, it is what really uh, produces the variety of uh, communication sounds because you don't have really much else. Uh, frequency modulation allows you to change that in so many different ways. So a lot of information is there. So that would suggest that... Uh, there are neural mechanisms to do that, and people have been, therefore been looking at those neural mechanisms, and they seem to be present in the cortex and other higher structures. Uh, and so the question is: Would they are they being are the similar mechanisms being used in lower animals, even between bats and humans, or possibly in fish, or are there different ways of doing things? And that's again, we don't know. The, I think either possibility is there, but 
if they are the same, then that would be showing that there's some conservation in nature. And if they're not, then it would say that, you know, there are multiple ways of doing the same thing in nature and that there's evidence of that as well. And then so the either question, way, I think it's the question for that is what is the role of the cortex? That's a big question, <laughs> which a lot of people, in fact, you know, a few years ago, there was a conference that was exactly the title of the conference, because every, everything that people would first find in the cortex, and this has been a really a history in, uh, in the auditory uh, literature, in fact, there are groups of people who are so devoted to the cortex and, and say all of this is happening in the cortex, but then there are people working on the midbrain and they keep finding the same type of uh, you know, mechanisms and processing happening in the inferior colliculus, for example. <laughs> so, so what is the cortex really doing? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. <laughs> so uh, it's, maybe it's a related question, but how do we know that the bat sounds really mean something? Like if the bat makes the same sound twice, does it mean yeah. the same thing? Or like other animals, like dogs yeah. bark at each other, but we don't, I mean, sometimes we imagine uh-huh. we know what they mean, but... Right. Probably so, we don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, so the uh, since ever since we started working on the bats, that this has been a question that many people have asked, and we didn't really know the answer for a long time uh, until one of those uh, one of the research technicians actually in my lab became very interested in studying behavior in bats. And uh, um, the more he studied them, the more he discovered, first of all, we were able to very clearly show that every communication sound, without doing many manipulations, just in the natural behavior, we were able to show with extreme precision that every different sound, every syllable actually was connected with one particular type of behavior. So the, the broadband noise burst was always emitted as an aggressive sound and bats were fighting with each other. Very, very specifically. Um, but the same token, when bats would literally kiss each other, lick each other's face, uh, they would produce a whistling type of sound. So that helped us uh, tell us, just two examples, that the sounds were clearly associated with social behavior in specific contexts. Now, it turns out that there is what is called a, Mort- a Morton's motivation structure hypothesis. So not only are sounds in a particular species associated with particular behaviors, but it seems that across animal species, uh, including humans, that uh, there, there are certain structures of sounds that all animals use those for those particular uh, purpose. And one example is um, are the noisy broadband sounds. So they are used in aggression in bats. And guess what? When we become angry, our voice becomes harsh. And if you record that and look at the spectrum, it becomes noisy, just like the bats uh, sound. So that would suggest that, you know, this evolved many millions of years ago. Which summertime we said we're going to talk about screeching. Yeah, so we are going here from screeching to speeching. <laughs> I was wondering, it's related to that, if anyone has tried to do any of the like, basic psychophysics paradigms where you pair up like uh, an image of an aggression, aggressive scene with the sound of the, you know, to see if there's some, if they're actually perceiving it the way that you're interpreting, they're perceiving it um, towards each other. I mean, is it just coincidental that those sounds are always happening in those certain with those certain behaviors, or do they actually mean something with regard to those behaviors? I mean, you could pair them up 
congressly or incongressly and somehow yeah. see how the bats react to them. Sure. I think the, the regular, rigorous scientific way would be to do those experiments and to demonstrate that uh, other sounds do not have the same impact as as the sounds that are meant for a particular. But those experiments are hard to do, and uh, especially in bats. And so they haven't been done. We have, uh, I can tell you anecdotally, we have uh, presented uh, a sound when a bat, an aggressive sound, for example, when a bat was approaching another group of bats. And as soon as we played that sound back, it immediately turned around and went away. So other times we played the sound, but bats wouldn't care because they know that it's not the right context. So they are pretty smart in that sense that the sounds don't just, you know, they don't stereotypically respond to them. But within a particular context, if a sound was played, they did respond in the way that you would expect it. Some of the problem is the visual stuff of that, right? I mean, we don't know whether they know what an angry bat face looks like because most of the time they're in in dark. They're in the dark, and then you only have one modality. And, and this, this is the question right there for you, correct? Communication. One of the big features that human use is visual to do lip reading. This animal, basically, this is one of the problems as we're trying to solve when we are in a crowded environment, correct? If I'm trying to understand your voice and hear the many voice, I'm trying to read your lips. How they do? How bad that looks like they're great in communication, then overcome these uh, by living in the dark? In a crowd, where many of them yeah, are no, talking no. once. I yeah, yeah. Solve that yeah, yeah. We were talking about that actually a little bit. Uh, clearly, they do not have the visual information that that we have. Um, although, interestingly, we have seen some visual displays, which we were intrigued by. How come these visual displays are being uh, are connected with this communication sounds because the bats cannot see? So there may be some type of a reflex uh, uh, connection that carries over from other vertebrates because or other mammals because clearly the behaviors that we saw in bats were we could easily relate to the behaviors in other mammals as well. Now like, the other like what, yeah. what, what kind of displays? Uh, like some of them have to do with uh, bracing their face facial features in a certain way if they are making the aggressive sounds. Maybe they just have them that way. But we were able to see some of those uh, uh, those things. Um, and the question of, uh, other interesting question is of the noisy environment, right? So this is the cocktail party effect, which is a famous effect, which uh, uh, is one of the sort of unsolved problems. And in humans, we think that by following each, uh, by looking at the person, you get some additional information also about what the person is saying. But that's just one cue. Uh, we probably, the auditory system has multiple cues. So you could also follow the a certain modulation because it's higher in intensity, because it's coming from a certain source as compared to other sources. Uh, you could use that for binding that information and being able to follow that sound. And uh, my guess is that bats have those type of mechanisms um, but in their case, they are mostly relying on the auditory mechanisms, on the sound mechanisms to do that. And uh, in fact, uh, from what we know from the tuning of their neurons, they are extremely sharply tuned in the cortex. That is one of the key things that stands out in the bat's uh, auditory cortex as compared to a mouse or a rat, is that they are very sharply tuned. And they are very sharply tuned because they are inhibited by the neurons that are sensitive to other frequencies. That's what sharpens, kind of sculpts their 
the 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 normal broad tuning into very fine tuning. So what that does is that uh, in terms of echolocation, they can only hear their own own pulse because their own pulse is matched to the tuning of their cortical neurons, whereas 50 other bats next to them are also echolocating at the same time. But it turns out that each one shifts their frequency a little bit away from the neighboring bat so that their frequency matches the tuning of their auditory cortex. So that's one of the mechanisms that has been uh, pretty much shown in terms of the tuning and also shown in terms of that the bats uh, make their frequencies diverge so they don't have jamming of the signal. So do they have a... Do they- do yeah, they have a, do, they, do they do that when they're talking too? Yeah, they do. Do they yeah. move uh-huh. away from each other in frequency? Uh, no, when they I are, I think, talking, but I yeah, think. well, when they yeah, <laughs> talking in quotes, uh, uh, <laughs> when they are communicating, and in fact, you know, sometimes uh, maybe even communicating information other than emotional content, which is typically what we associate the animals with, um, they probably in that situation they probably do not change their frequency because there's there is a different um, purpose there. Uh, because in that uh, situation, in fact, uh, the other bat, who's the listener, should also know who is talking. So, it's you know, we are talking here. I can close my eyes and I can, I can say that you said something because your pitch is different. And so, in fact, uh, it has been shown, there are papers uh, published on this, that bats can recognize other individuals simply by their sound, huh. by their pitch. Uh, or whatever the vocal signature is. So they and don't so, have to change. Yeah, pitch. so they don't have to and they don't need to, and that's perhaps why uh, we have two sides to the cortex, and in fact, one side is likely extracting who is doing the talking, the information about the identity of the speaker, whereas the other side may be extracting the meaning. And in humans, we know that one side extracts the prosodic information and possibly the identity of the speaker, whereas the other side is uh, extracting the meaning. And, uh, uh, f- uh, you know, females are really good at that because somehow their brains are not as lateralized and they can probably do this dual processing even better than uh, than males. But there is also a lot of study that are showing that that is not true. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> so. Well, one thing, yeah, well, one thing I was, actually I was going to yeah. ask you related to that is... Um, so one of the current hypotheses of what's actually happening in understanding language and sentence yeah, processing yeah. is that they're both hemispheres are contributing to meaning, um, but see. the right hemisphere is getting the gist of the meaning and the I left see. hemisphere is getting the specifics of the specific words, the specific syntax, and the, so yeah. the details are happening in the left. Yes, and the, yeah. and the, 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 if you just rely on right hemisphere processing, you uh-huh. would understand the message. I see. But yeah. you wouldn't be able to recall back the same exact sentence. I see. You couldn't criticize anybody's grammar. Exactly. <laughs> so I was going to bring this back to Yeah, so it's not a black and white. It's not a black and white difference. In fact, even in bats, we don't see a black and white difference in the left and right. It's actually almost on the same order, almost like 60-40 uh-huh. uh, in terms of. So both both hemispheres, I think that, that would be consistent with the bat uh, uh, data, that both hemispheres, are, in fact, I showed you, they can respond to all the communication sounds. But it's, uh, you know, it's the threshold sensitivity level that's different. That would be consistent. And when you were arguing, well, not arguing, when you mentioned multifunctionality as a yeah. key principle rather than specialization earlier, I was thinking, well, lateralization is a clear type of specialization. And how do you sort of, because 
it yeah. is a, such an important idea yeah. that may or may not be going out of favor in some respects. I, I mean, I, don't, I just wanted. To well, you know, there's a this has this has some this is something that has a very long history, right? When uh, <clears throat> from the time when uh, people would uh, associate certain lumps on the skull to specific functions, and then it, this has gone back and forth. And so, um, you know, most likely both principles are true to different extents. Uh, obviously, you don't expect a certain part of the brain to completely be able to do something else. But I think what's more intriguing uh, uh, is the fact that neurons can uh, can switch and do multiple types of processing. I think that idea is uh, a little bit more new and uh, and and consistent with the plasticity that we discover now that is present, you know, in the brain. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I think uh, that that's kind of an interesting thing to keep in mind. So with regard to the cells, um, sort of coding preferences for the different features or the different frequencies, <clears throat> I was thinking about that in terms of perceptual categorization and decide. The idea that human babies within the first 10 months of life have narrowed into the language that they're hearing and the sounds that don't exist in their language can't be perceived or they're perceived as one of the the categories that that they now have formed. So I was trying to map that onto what you were arguing about how these cells are coding the information and trying to figure out if these cells were already there and that's what they like to code for or did they, were they trained to code for these different features? And so what happens during that little crystallization period um, when they're developing these perceptual categories? Yeah. So I think that's all very exciting work um, that has uh, clarified this idea of how, how uh, <clears throat> babies actually are able to learn a particular language as they're growing up because it's a statistical phenomenon. It's the type of sound that they're going to hear. Is a type of uh, neuron features uh, that neurons respond to are going to develop. And um, to a great extent, that probably happens in bats as well. So <clears throat> as we were talking about earlier, um, bats can learn uh, vocalizations and they can also change their vocalizations and modify them to match that of uh, maybe a subpopulation, different population, uh, and so that would suggest that these properties are probably being maintained uh, of the neurons and everything may be very dynamic. And I think some of the songbird literature uh, and the work, uh, in fact, I think Todd is interested in that, uh, is that that also may be uh, quite dynamic and being maintained. And that's why songbirds have to continuously sing for their, uh, not just for uh, advertising to others, but perhaps to maintain their own, uh, right, song neurons and uh, production and perception. Yeah, well, the, whether things are an ongoing processes in, of sharpening in adults versus the developmental process, it's, it's an interesting thing. What, what, one of the things that Nicole was talking about, whether, <coughs> I, don't, and I don't know whether you tried this yeah. perceptually, whether you get categorical perception amongst the classes. <laughs> That you've you made distinctions because one of the things about those development slows it, and that those people have different opinions on how, how categorical the categorical perceptions are mm-hmm. in speech. But at least they've argued they become more categorical over the first year. Mm. And whether you did a parametric uh, uh, study of morphing one of your classes of of sounds into something else, 
whether we know how the cortical processing goes. Is there a categorical shift uh, in some kind of morphing experiment? Is anybody trying to think? Yeah, well, well, I wanted to do that for a, a long time. Uh, and in fact, uh, Parthamitra at Bell Labs uh, designed a way to uh, morph one sound into another uh, which actually turns out is not easy. Unlike uh, morphing faces and visual uh, scenes, it's not so easy to morph one sound into another sound. Uh, now, I think there are some uh, methods developed for speed sound, but I don't think for these high frequency sounds anybody has that. So we were not able to. We were not able to uh, continue that, and uh, so many things one can do. But definitely a very interesting uh, thing that I was very keen on, on doing was to morph one call into another and see where the neuron stops responding or starts responding to that. Yeah. So bats have syllables. Do they have words? I mean, certain of these syllables always happen together over and over again <coughs> enough for you to think that they mean something together. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, so that's a very interesting question as well. The question is that um, how do how is our communication, in fact, different from bats? So we have shown that bats can uh, use uh, at least nineteen different, completely different type of syllables, and we may not have recorded all of them because we are not recording in all of the natural situations. So if one thinks about it, if let's say if there are a few more, they're not uh, that different from the number of uh, syllables or alphabets or phonemes we have in the English language. So the question is, well, we can generate all these, you know, thousands and um, of words, then why cannot the bats? Uh, and what is really the difference? So my thought on that is that one of the things, why did we develop language and why did we, you know, with from the viewpoint of speech, why did we have so many speech sounds? How can we have so many speech sounds? Because we have only the number of syllables is about the same. So one way of looking at it is that in order for a speech sound to be discriminable and to have to to make it have some significance, it has to have a meaning. So what we did, even though let's say originally we were not, we didn't produce that many different types of sounds. But we attach the meaning of the sound not to the unit of the sound, which is the phoneme. The phoneme has no meaning for us. But we attach the meaning of the sound to a string of phonemes. And when you do that, you now free up the phonemes to be used in multiple ways. And so you have now a huge variety of words and meanings that you can produce and a very large vocabulary, whereas animals actually assign meaning to the to their so-called phoneme, their own syllable itself. And so they're not really left with uh, with too many, uh, you know, combinations that they can produce. Yeah, so and no maybe words. they don't care because they don't have or they don't have that machinery and, you know, they're a lot no more neurons to do that. Those, those particular syllables, that is their... That is their... Their, exactly, is because they're very discreet and they're very directly connected with So they with probably the have a word for angry and a word for happy. And a word exactly. For, but they don't have a word for moon. Exactly. There you go. And they might have a, a bag of words for a combination of things. That's possible. But yeah. not, uh, yeah. but so not that, a different That seems concept. like one difference between bats and birds then, because the birds do seem to have these sequences of sounds that always go together in a certain pattern. Uh, no? Yeah. Bats have two, but the two is maybe the different in extent. So there's definitely, um, we've done some work with syntax in these sounds, and we've also recorded from neurons and uh, shown that 
if you change the order of the of the two syllables in uh, in a phrase let's say or in a composite what we call then the neurons don't respond to it so there's definitely some some evidence there is some syntax even in the bats and we've done transitional probabilities and stuff so there are rules of how they're going to combine the syllables just like us so it, so qualitatively there is not a difference but quantitatively there is and and i think the bird literature suggest the same thing but maybe to I, don't know, I, I only study dumb birds so, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of really smart birds that oh yeah like much, the nightingale or yeah well there's a lot of well there's mimics and, yeah. and stuff like that they're complicated things but there's also you know really smart birds like the corvids the crows and so forth and that's right and some people the starlings are getting there they have much more complicated uh communication and combinatorics that I don't, I don't really don't know that literature. I don't know how much people know about that because they don't do well. They're smart enough to not to do well in captivity. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, well, think about the parrots though. Yeah, they the, can, they are pretty much, you know, talk like us, right? Yeah, but they're, they're, <laughs> they're more on the mimic. Although they, yeah, but they have the, the machinery to produce those. Songs. Although the gray parrots is, yeah. a, is actually a really yeah. good uh, thing. So people have domesticated parrots. Yeah. They can say and do really, they're smart enough to be pissed that they're captive. <laughs> and they do nasty stuff like play yeah. around with a dog and say, and like imitate the door opening. And the dog's all excited. Exactly. You know? Or like I had, a, I had somebody take care of our dog. He had a gray that like learned to say walkie. Walkie, the dog could get all excited. And stuff, <laughs> nobody around, so they, they definitely they, they know. know them, but yeah, but those are different. Uh, you know, yeah. meeting. That's actually an interesting question because I, I mean, the, the crow has been like the model animal for a lot of these cognitive paradigms, executive yeah. function, and solve the problem solving. And so you wonder why they wouldn't have evolved a more complex communication system if they're able to think that much more complexly. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've I never know. heard anybody give an example of a crow. So it's not very pleasant to listen to. <laughs> yeah. Well, they have. I, I don't know. Some people study them, but not, it's just hard yeah. uh, to study them because they don't. You can't keep them in captivity. They need big areas and stuff like that. And that's a big thing, right? Uh, of how easy a, uh, an animal is to study in terms of a natural communication environment. Yeah. Uh, if you can't make it natural and they're doing real communication, they're not going to be there unless you have a, a reasonable natural environment to do that. So yeah. it's just not practical. I mean, so, like for until a few years ago, people didn't think that, you know, alligators made any sound. And now they know they have a huge, uh, you know, a pretty large uh, vocabulary of uh, sounds that they make. The last uh, one is always crunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one you know, I'm familiar with. And nobody knew giraffes made, make sounds. They do. Uh, elephants, uh, they actually mimic sounds. They can mimic the sound of a truck going by. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, we just, uh, we haven't really, because the technology was not there, only in the last decade has the technology become portable enough and uh, uh, good enough to uh, monitor a lot of the sounds that we can take that into the field and start to do. And that's happening now. And we're discovering more and more about the uh, auditory world of animals. Well, it's excellent for the ethological approach to neuroscience. And I feel yeah. like we could go on for another 45 minutes or whatever we've been doing. But I'm going to stop it here. Thank you for being with us, Jag Penwell. And this has been Neuroscience Talk Shop. Great.